I feel like this is a very important message, not to anything to do with me, but it's, it's needed. And I trust the Lord to help me. He has to. I know my own weakness. And I know how even the things that He's put on my heart to preach today, how often I've failed at them. But I've said it before here, God doesn't call perfect or sinless men to preach. He calls men to preach a perfect message. It's not about the messenger, it's about the one that we're preaching about. And um, I have to remember that when I feel overwhelmed with, with what he wants me to bring. So part of why I feel that way is this, this type of message has been preached many times in the wrong spirit. I've probably preached it in the wrong spirit before. And I think it causes unnecessary division and religious pride when a message like this is preached the wrong way. So pray for me that the Lord will help me. I don't even know what to call it, but maybe evangelism or evangelism according to Jesus or maybe how to evangelize. But the, 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 the topic is telling people about salvation. Let's read in John chapter 3 to begin. As you're turning to John chapter 3, I'm going to pray. Holy Spirit, we've already approached your throne. We've already prayed. We've already felt you this morning. But I ask you once again, overwhelm this whole service. Lord, accompany the words of this gospel message. Help me to preach only what you would be pleased with. And every thought I might have had that is only my thought, let it be left to the side. Come Holy Spirit, magnify yourself. Let our minds be open. Let our hearts be receptive. Teach us the things you want us to know in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same man came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, whither it goeth. So, thank you, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? In other words, what you're telling me isn't that simple. This sounds complicated. This sounds hard. I don't understand. And Jesus said, Are you a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know. We testify that we have seen, and you have received not our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? I'm going to pause there. Um, this is the passage that nobody talks about. They talk about John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen and praise the Lord for that. But that is in the context of a conversation Jesus is having with a religious ruler named Nicodemus. And this is what he told him before he got to that part. I want you to have this in the background. We may come back and look at this verse by verse. But let's have that in the background as we try to approach this message today. Evangelism. What is evangelism? Before we even know how to evangelize or, or the right way or... or, or if there are parameters or, or aspects that we should 
have, before any of that, we have to figure out what is evangelism even is. What are we talking about? I didn't look up a dictionary definition. I'm just telling you what God put on my heart for today. So today, when I'm using the word evangelism, here's what I mean. Telling people about the good news of Jesus and His salvation in hopes that they might repent of their sins, find absolute forgiveness and peace with God, come to know Jesus personally, and be completely transformed by His power. That's evangelism. Telling people the truth so that their lives might be transformed. I have to give you a little bit of background or a little bit of cultural aspects. And I want to be careful. Um, Well, let let me just... I'm just going to preach. Forget trying to make... Yeah. In Christianity today, it seems there's two broad groups. I'm talking about everybody around that says I'm a Christian. There's two big groups, big categories. The first category is what you might call traditional or orthodox churches. The other category, which is what we get lumped into, whether we want to be or not, is what you might call evangelical churches. You even hear this terminology in the media. You'll hear talk of Catholics and Protestants, or you'll hear talk of evangelicals, or you might hear a political political candidate talking about the evangelical base. The evangelical base. You hear this language everywhere. And it seems that there's two broad views within these groups. In the first group, the orthodox circles, there's a focus on the church, and there isn't much talk, if any, about actually being saved, coming to know God. People who grow up in this first category, this like high church category, and I'm not criticizing, I'm just telling you the the culture we're in. Uh, there's no talk about a born-again experience. You just sort of get absorbed into the church. It might happen when you're christened. It might happen when you're confirmed. Or you, you just go and you're just there. The second group, the evangelicals, there's a lot of talk about being born again. And they include other terminology such as accepting Christ, receiving Christ, making a decision for Christ. And this, brothers, this is the religious climate in our culture today. We need to understand it. Because these are the people we're interacting with. This is the influences that have happened in the world, so we need to understand it. And the burden God has put on my heart is, if we talk to someone about being saved, it's likely, coming from either one of these groups, that either they have no idea what you're talking about because they've never heard of it. I mean, literally. You can go to church your whole life and never hear anybody talk about an experience of salvation. They might be in that category or they might be in this other category where they have talked about being saved, but everything they've ever heard is a counterfeit idea. This is why I need the Lord's help today that I'll preach. I don't want to be too hard, but I don't want to be... um, I want to be bold and loving. And this burden God has put on me that has completely weighed me down all week is to address not the first group, but the second group, which we're associated with, this group called Evangelical Christians. And what God has burdened me with today is to address some of the false teachings within this group, and more importantly, the true teachings of Scripture. We need to know what Scripture teaches about salvation and how we ought to share the good news with the world. We want people to be saved. I hope that's true. And I don't doubt, I want you to know this, I don't doubt the sincerity of many people, individuals that use unscriptural phrases. I don't doubt the sincerity of their hearts. And some of them, I don't doubt that they're saved and I don't doubt that, that they mean well. But words matter. Because they convey ideas which either convey truth or convey counterfeits of truth. Words matter. And how we evangelize matters. It's so important. Because we're not just talking about an idea. We're not just talking about religion. We're talking about the eternal safety 
of people, whether they go to heaven or not. It matters more than our opinions, more than our customs, more than our thoughts, more than what we like or don't like. These things matter. And so, with all of that, let's just address the most common false phrasing, the false teaching. People talk about... uh, Accepting Christ, receiving Christ, making a decision for Christ. Where do they get it from? Do you know? Do you know where it came from? It wasn't around until a little over 100 years ago. Not at all. It didn't come from the Bible. And, and I want to be careful in preaching this, that this message doesn't produce an attitude of we're right and everybody else is wrong, because that's... If you think you're right, you're not as right as you think you are. The Apostle Paul said that. If any among you thinks he knows something, he doesn't know it as well as he should. So let's, let's watch the attitude of our hearts as I preach. That's to this church, brothers and sisters, and to people who have been raised in what we believe is the truth. But this, this idea, it didn't come from the teachers of Scripture or from Scripture itself. It came from, from modern-day salesmen. You, you, history, you could just read history. D.L. Moody, Charles Finney, and other people like them who might have meant very well. I don't know if they were saved or not. Maybe they were. But they thought they should create a method that got to the point quicker, that got people to yes quicker, that got the process done quicker. That's where this came from. I've had conversations with people for more than 20 years. And sometimes, almost always, this phrasing comes up, except Christ. I was about 19 or 18 years old. I was on a flight one time from Florida. And, you know, when used to before the culture changed. If you're on a flight by, with somebody, you talk to them. You're, I mean, you're stuck with them for hours and you're going to talk. And this man, we got to talking about the Lord and he, he said something about accepting Christ. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, I was a wild young man, and, and I did whatever I wanted, and, and hurt people, and had a bad life. And I don't remember exactly how he said it, but it was basically, God got a hold of me and broke me. And I found myself on my knees begging him for forgiveness. And something happened where all of that hatred and pain and violence went away, and I was filled with peace, and I've never been the same. And you know what I told him? Why don't you say that? And it had never occurred to him because the only religious language he had ever heard is except Christ. He didn't know how to describe it. So here's what I want anybody listening to this message. Don't turn off your ears if you've never heard a message like this. And you here in this church, if you have heard messages like this, don't assume you know what I'm going to say. Because this is different than what you usually hear. Why should we not say this phrase? The most simple thing is, does the Bible ever have that phrase in it? Not one single time. You can verify this for yourself. I've looked in multiple translations. Only one translation that I found, which is not a translation but a paraphrase, has the phrase once. Not King James Version, not English Standard Version, not NASB. None of these translations say except Christ anywhere. To me, that alone should be enough that we should never use that phrase. Well, let me ask you this. Did Jesus ever preach to anyone to accept Christ? No. Did the apostles ever preach to anyone to accept Christ? No. Did any of the prophets ever preach to anyone to just accept Christ? No. And if none of these people who were the Son of God and other men divinely inspired by God to give us the Word of God, if none of them ever used that phrase, why would we? Is there an example anywhere in the entire Bible of anyone ever using this phrase? The answer is a resounding no. And here's what, in light of what I've preached recently and the message last week that that God is uh, eternal, immortal, and invisible, that He knows all, that will happen, has happened, and is happening. Don't you think that Jesus, who knows everything, if this was a phrase he wanted to use among his people, he would have said it somewhere. 
knowing that 2,000 years after his death, maybe well-meaning people would come along and invent this method of evangelism. Don't you think if Jesus approved of it that he would have somewhere endorsed it? Because this has swept the world. He would have, and he didn't. Knowing all that, uh, that's why you, you will never hear me preach except Christ. This church doesn't believe that. That's why. Not just because I grew up being taught. that. No, it's deeper than that. It doesn't fit with Scripture. Now, not just the phrasing. Okay? People, I told you about the man on the airplane. I've met plenty of people over the years who use that phrase because it's the only phrase they've ever known to use, and they're saved. So I don't want you to get hung up on just the phrase because what's dangerous is not just the wording itself but the underlying doctrinal assumptions beneath it that make people think that something like that is all it takes. Where, how does, where does it come from? It comes from... and, and I, I've had this conversation with people too. This exact thing. Brother... If the Bible doesn't say accept Christ, why would you? Well, it implies it. It's just an easier way of getting to the point. When did Jesus ever try to find an easier way to get to the point? He did the opposite. He preached the truth and he let people struggle with it. That's what he did with Nicodemus. Don't you think if Jesus wanted us to have a simple five-step method of uh, evangelistic conversion where we could get a person to yes right away on the spot, He would have shown us that in a personal private conversation with somebody like Nicodemus? And yet, we don't even know if Nicodemus was saved then. You know how that, that, that conversation ends? It says, after these things came, Jesus went somewhere else. We don't even see. We see later that Nicodemus that he's a changed man and has become a follower of Christ, but we don't see that right here. We don't know if he was saved on the spot or if he went home and wrestled with these things. It seems likely to me that he went home and wrestled with these things. So if Jesus, the Son of God, the hope of glory and salvation itself, didn't convert somebody on the spot, why do people think that's their job? And y'all, listen, you, this might be sort of an alien idea to some people here if you've only ever gone to this church but this is how the world evangelizes or they don't evangelize at all there's just no talk of being saved or they talk about it this way it's not just the phraseology it's the underlying assumptions that salvation is a gift universally offered to all that's what they say and, and that, that's scripture salvation is a gift but, but this idea that it's universally offered to all, that it's just sort of floating in the ether, it's just there for you to take it, that's not scriptural. That's what's underlying this idea of just accepting Christ, receiving Christ, or, 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 or having this just take it. Because they assume that a gift is something you can just simply receive, and that by extension you can just take it whenever you want it. It's a free gift. You just have it. Years ago, one of my really... Um, close friends, thought she was saved, she wasn't. God saved her by His grace. And I remember her saying this phrase, I did not understand it. She said, I finally realized I can't take it. I thought she meant, I can't stand the pressure anymore. She explained to me what she meant was, salvation is not something I can just grab and take. It's not a gift I can just take whenever I want. Because she grew up in these circles being taught that it's a free gift, you just take it. It's just there. Just take it. Doesn't that sound nice and easy, brothers and sisters? Jesus loves you. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Listen, all you have to do, this gift is here. He loves you. You can take God at His word. He keeps His promises. You can hold Him to His word. Just take it. That is what is being taught. It's so dangerous. Because it leads people to have this attitude that you can just take God at His word or hold God to His promises. We've been preaching about who God is some here. Do you think God is somebody you can hold to anything? What kind of God do you serve if you can hold Him to something? Oh, that's not my God. My God is more powerful than anything, and He's certainly more powerful than anything I think I know about Him. I'm not holding Him to anything. 
He's the almighty King of kings, the Lord of glory. And if He saves, it's by His own grace and mercy and desire. It's not because I held Him to something I thought He said. Do you see? This is all part and parcel with the idea of just accepting Christ. Part of the problem with this, brothers and sisters, and I want if you're listening to this online or on the recording later, and you go to a church that, that uses this terminology, and you have been saved by God's grace, and you've had Him transform your life, and you know you're a new person, this phrasing doesn't do that. I want you to understand how dangerous it is. This isn't a, a denominational message. This is a gospel message that I hope God will use to get people's attention. Because part of the problem with just using words or phrases like this is it takes the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit out and replaces it with some words on paper as if salvation is just floating in the air. I want to be very clear. I love the Bible. But the Bible does not offer anyone salvation. Salvation is not offered in this book. And if you've been taught that, search the scriptures where you think you find eternal life, you'll find out you're wrong. The Bible doesn't offer you salvation. Salvation is offered by God. And His salvation is not something floating in the air for you to just take. It's personal. He offers it personally. And when He gives you the invitation, He gives it. He gives you an invitation to eternal life which starts with Him breaking you and showing you you're a sinner and you need to repent. That's how you get the gift of eternal life. Not by just accepting the gift, but by repenting of everything you are. Salvation is not just there for the taking. Today, people mistake principles of teaching for the presence of God. There are plenty of scriptures that talk about salvation being available, being free, that it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast, that God loves the world. All of this is true. But these are principles of truth that are not substitutes for the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. Just because the Bible teaches truth about salvation, one of my mentors, he used to say it this way, nowhere in the Bible does it say, Brad Wheeler, you're saved. The Bible cannot offer you salvation and it cannot give you salvation and it cannot assure you of salvation. It can only tell you truth. Because salvation is life. And only someone who is alive can offer you life, give you life, and assure you that you've been given life. A book can't do that. I already said this, but you can't hold God to His Word. If you can, you don't serve a real God. Not the real God. Now, we also have to understand, embedded in this um, evangelistic, false evangelistic terminology, is also the assumption that salvation is just something you get. Salvation is a gift. Give me the gift. I'm going to receive it. I'm going to no. Salvation. If you've been saved, you know this. It's not something you get. It is who you become as a result of spiritual birth. You change. You don't just get it. That's why even among our ranks, I hear people say, I got saved. That's okay. But I'd rather say God saved me. I didn't get it. It's not a thing. He saved me. He transformed my life. Salvation is not just the thing you get, but who you become as a result of spiritual birth. Jesus said this in John chapter 6, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It is the Spirit who gives life. I already said this, but I need to dwell on it for a minute. The Bible can't save you. Only God can save. This book, apart from the living Spirit of God, is just information. It's good information. Make no mistake, it's the best information. If you want to read any information in the world, this is the best information you're going to find. 
It contains the best information in the world. It contains the information that can alert you to your need for a Savior. But information cannot save you because salvation is not informational. It's experiential. Salvation is a work of God. It is a great and beautiful mystery. I've been saved more than half my life. Some of you have been saved twice as long as I've been alive. And God bless you. What a wonderful thing to have. And that whole time I've been trying to explain how God saved me and I still can't explain it. It's a mystery. It's supernatural. It doesn't mean there aren't doctrinal truths we should have when we talk about it. Absolutely, there's the right way to talk about it. But it's still a mystery. It's a work of God. And it's dangerous and foolish to attempt to distill this mystery into a tiny pamphlet or a little decisional card or five spiritual rules or just follow these steps. It's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Jesus didn't do that. The apostles didn't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. So we shouldn't either. And you need to be aware of this. And I'm telling you, I'm not telling you to go to a certain church with a certain name. I'm saying whatever religious people you're around, whatever church you go to, if they employ these methods and practices and this assumptions that I'm talking about, watch out. Watch out. It's dangerous. Now, God does offer this gift of salvation personally. He's the gift giver, not the Bible. He offers new life. And this offer for new life is not some mass marketing blanket offer to everyone. It's not. It's not impersonal. No, this is an invitation made to you individually by the Holy Spirit Himself. So what is the gift? We keep talking, God's offering you a gift. What is the gift? This is why you can't just take it. The gift fundamentally is forgiveness. That's what salvation is, forgiveness from sins. Now, I don't think people in our culture understand what forgiveness is when they partake in these false teachings about salvation because forgiveness comes from a person who has been wronged extending something that they're not required to extend to the person who wronged them. Do you understand that? Forgiveness comes from the person who was offended from the person who was wronged, from the person who was unjustly treated. They extend it. Do you realize how... I want to give an example to make this make sense. To show you the absurdity of accepting Christ or assuming salvation is just something you can receive. Things like this have happened. I've seen trials where... Criminals have been dealt with by God and they recognize how terrible they were and they want to pay for their sins and they understand they did wrong and they're ready to go to jail and they still want to be forgiven if possible. And I'm thinking of one particular case where the person so humbly asked, he said, I know I don't deserve it. I know you don't have to, but if you could forgive me, I would really appreciate it. That person recognizes what forgiveness is. Not like these people who have come under false religious teaching who think forgiveness is something you just take. It doesn't work that way. If you were to come, say, into my house... Harm my wife or child, and 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 then later say, uh, "I accept your forgiveness." What would you say? Watch out, buddy! I didn't offer you any forgiveness. You haven't repented. I don't know if you're sorry. Do you understand? And I'm not putting God on our level. I'm saying it's it's not just doctrinally unsound. It's absurd. To say that you can just take from God this forgiveness. What if He hasn't offered it to you yet? He only offers it to you when you repent. (sighs) 
forgiveness from God. Once the offended person has received a sufficient apology, or in other words, once the person who was wrong comes to the person that they wronged and repents in humble brokenness and asks their forgiveness and mercy, you repent how you sinned against them and ask them to forgive you, then it's up to them whether they do or not. You can't forgive yourself. You can't demand forgiveness. And you can't take it. The the gift of salvation is forgiveness from sin. Do you see? It doesn't work that you're just going to receive it from the air or from a book. You, You must go to the person you offended by your very existence, by your sinful life, just by being who you were. That's what repenting is going to God. God, forgive me. And you know those of you who have wrestled with God until He saved you. You know what I'm talking about. And if you're listening to this recording or you're here and you don't know what I'm talking about, talk to God until you understand what I'm saying. Salvation is the most beautiful, powerful, transformative experience you will ever have. It's so far beyond just deciding to live a different life. It's so far beyond just receiving Christ. It's so far beyond that. And it starts with repentance, forgiveness. Now, you don't decide if you've satisfied the person who needs to forgive you. You just repent. And when that person's satisfied with your repentance, they'll forgive you and you'll know. You, you even see this in small things like little marital disputes. And you hear people say things like, Sorry you got your feelings hurt. You're not sorry. You're annoyed at the inconvenience of your situation. Sorry you got your feelings. No. I'm so sorry I hurt you. I didn't mean to. Can you forgive me? There's a difference. You know this. Why wouldn't there be a difference with God? What did Jesus and the apostles and the prophets, John the Baptist, what did they all preach? They didn't preach accept Christ. They didn't preach receive Christ. They didn't preach make a decision. They didn't preach... um, Dedicate your life to the Lord. They preached, repent. Repent. That's hard. It doesn't have to. I mean, it's hard until you repent. And then you realize it wasn't that hard. Because all it is is surrender. It's letting go of everything you thought you could do and throwing yourself on the mercy of God. And then you say, why did, it, why did I make it so hard? John the Baptist, Jesus, the apostles, all of the early followers of Christ and all the faithful preachers throughout all of history preached repentance. Jesus taught in Luke 13, 3. He said an example of some people that were destroyed by the Tower of Siloam when it fell down and all these people thought they were better than them. And Jesus said, you think you're better than them? No, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. I love the example in Acts 2. 37 and 38, Peter was preaching, and it says these people listening were cut to the heart. They were convicted of their sins. They were broken. They were torn up, whatever word you want to use. And they said to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's telling them, repent, repent. And then as evidence that you have repented and that you are a new person and that you're willing to follow Christ even in a culture where you're going to be hated and persecuted and maybe killed, as evidence of that, get baptized. Do you see? The Apostle Paul in the Galatian letter, he said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says he was the best teacher outside of Jesus that we've ever had. The the only systematic theology that we have in Scripture comes from Paul, the Roman letter. He says, I'm not even alive There's nothing I can do except Christ living through me. And the life I'm living in this body, I live by the faith of Jesus. 
There's a reason I'm using the King James translation today because it's the only one that gets that part of Galatians right. Every other translation that I read from says faith in Christ, which is it's not accurate. This, the Greek construction and the genitive, it's the faith of Christ. It's the faith that comes from Him, that is derived in Him, that is held in Him. See, the faith that saves, it's not even from us. You can't have enough faith to save yourself. It's the faith of Christ. That's what Scripture teaches. So the notion that you can just make a decision for Christ, it's ridiculous. Now, I realize people who say it, many of them are sincere, and they mean well, and they're trying. I, I get it. I get it. But there's, it's wrong. Sincerity doesn't absolve you from using incorrect theology. So, I want to make sure this message is not a... Sometimes people preach, and all they preach about is anti-everything else. They never say, what. well, okay, what do you actually do then? <laughs> What's the right thing? All you're talking about is all the wrong... I don't want to do that. So let me, let me just say this. How should we evangelize? And let's get, I want to tell you the word again, that how I'm defining evangelism. Telling people about the good news of Jesus and His salvation in the hopes that they might repent of their sins, find absolute forgiveness and peace with God, and come to know Jesus personally and be completely transformed by His power. How should we do that? Well, first of all, according to Scripture only. We must look beyond what we think we understand about the printed Word. In other words, you, if you want to evangelize scripturally, you can't rely on what you think your mind understands. We must look beyond what we think we understand in the printed Word and compare our understandings and conclusions to the teachings and practices of the prophets, John the Baptist, Jesus, the apostles. So, as an example, and I, I want... People who are embedded in this doctrine, this language, this accept Christ, receive Christ, decisional evangelism idea. Listen. If you, I don't know if you're here or not, but listen to the recording. Let me give you an example. If you read a verse or a series of verses and you conclude, okay, that means I should go do this or I should go do that. So you go do that for a lot of years. And then you start digging in Scripture and you say, wait a minute. Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, none of them ever did this that I think I'm supposed to be doing. At a minimum, if you're a sincere follower of Christ, that should make you examine whether you should be doing that. At a minimum, that should make you say, am I actually doing the right thing? If, if Jesus, who is my master, who established this way called, that we call Christianity, if He never did this, if He never told us to do this, should I be doing it? At a minimum. If you find that they never did... Be careful. For example, Romans 5.15, Romans 6.23, they do refer to salvation as a free gift. And we know from Scripture that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we also know that Jesus' life and, and the gift is Jesus Himself. And our culture has taught us that all you have to do with a gift is receive it. And therefore, all you need to do is just accept Jesus. I mean, it sounds like a perfectly logical... It makes sense and sounds really easy. But there's a problem. You go look in Scripture and nobody ever did that. Anyone who's a sincere seeker of truth will see their error when they truly examine Scripture. See, if, if my conclusion has been that I just need to accept Christ, but then I look in the Scriptures and discover that never, ever, not even once is that phrase in there, then I, I have to conclude, I'm, I'm not right. This is not something I should be espousing. And listen, I'm not, again, I'm not saying just stop saying that one phrase. I'm talking about the whole doctrine that is built on decisional evangelism. Salvation is not decisional. It is life transformative. It is supernatural. It is birth. Now, where does this come from? I mentioned it comes from a few people that maybe they were well-meaning. I don't know their hearts. But these tactics, this, this um, way of evangelizing that, that our culture, the people who are called evangelistic Christians, the way they evangelize, it's not based on Scripture. It's based on techniques and tactics that come from sales and marketing training. 
I, I don't have time today, but if you want to sit down with me sometime, I can show you. It comes from training designed to get the person listening to yes as soon as possible. Just get them to yes. Don't you think if that's what Jesus wanted us to do, he would have done that with Nicodemus? And yet never in that conversation did Nicodemus say yes. He didn't accept Christ right then. Because Jesus told him the truth and let the Holy Spirit do his work. Even the Son of God evangelized in that way. Well-intentioned or not, if we use these tactics and systems just to get people to yes, we're circumventing the work of the Holy Spirit. And if we circumvent His work, they're not being saved. It doesn't matter if they say yes. It's like a person, when I was a kid, I was 11th grade, I worked at service merchandise. And it was, a, it was a good experience because I was the only person that age working there. Everybody was older. And back then, if y'all remember that store, it was sort of its own, there wasn't anything exactly like it. And they had sales trainers come in, like regional sales directors, and train us on pushing these products we were supposed to sell. And I've never liked salesmen after this experience. I, I, I had a little old lady, she was probably maybe in her late 80s. And this sales expert pressed and pressed and pressed until she said yes. She bought his little service plan and he puffed his chest out like a rooster and that's an example of how you should do this. And I walked her out, carried her stuff, and she said, that man could sell sand in the desert. I just said yes to get out of here. The goal is not to get them to yes. The goal is to speak the truth so the Holy Spirit can transform. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The only true or real or authentic evangelism must align with Scripture. You know this, brothers and sisters. And if you don't know this, you should. <laughs> you need to. And I'm praying the Holy Spirit shows us. The only real evangelism is biblical evangelism. All other forms of evangelism, no matter how good they sound, no matter how well they seem to work, no matter what results they seem to produce, if they're not biblical in their foundation, they're counterfeit. The only real evangelism is biblical evangelism. Everything about biblical evangelism. This, if, if the rest of this message, if it's not sinking in, this is what you need to get. Everything, Brother Joe, we were talking last night and he said, he said, I want to know how to talk to people about the Lord better. This is the, the crux, the thrust. Everything about biblical evangelism springs forth from the life of Christ within you. Not information you know. Not tactics or, tactics or techniques you've been taught. Not systems that you've been trained to deploy. Every bit of biblical evangelism springs forth from the life of Christ inside of you. True evangelism is not a thing you go do. It's not a thing you go do. And then you go back to you take and then you go back to your life. True evangelism is an overflowing of what God has done and is doing inside of you. Real evangelism is something that can't be contained. You can't go week after week and not talk to the people at the gas station, the grocery store, and the produce place, and the restaurant about the Lord, and then you're going to go on a mission trip and evangelize. It's bogus. True evangelism is an overflowing of what God is doing. You can't help but share it. It's not a system. It's not a method. It's not a technique. And I have friends... I been around religious people my whole life, tragically lost religious people. Some of them, they go through evangelism training, and they mean so well. But you can't train somebody to do something spiritual. And more importantly, you can't train a person to do something that only the Holy Spirit can do. 
True, true evangelism is a result of the overflowing of supernatural life. It is, listen to this, you write this down if you're taking notes. True evangelism is spiritual in its origins, spiritual in its implementation, and spiritual in its resulting effects. We're not looking for natural resort, results. We're not looking for natural results. And therefore, we dare not rely on natural means or methods. That's why I've been so hesitant. You've heard me since I've been here. I'm so cautious to talk about techniques or tactics. I, I've said sometimes, like, we need to be careful if what we're doing is not working. We need to examine, Lord, what would you have us do? But what I haven't taught is we need to try a new tactic. Because tactics and techniques and methods aren't what we need. We don't need better tactics. We don't need better techniques. We need power with God. That's the difference. We're not looking for natural results and therefore we can't use natural means. By natural, I mean anything resulting from this, the flesh, your mind. Colossians, we read this, To them God has chosen to make known, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the heart of evangelism. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Carnal or materialistic or humanistic methods do nothing for the true kingdom of God. We know this. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So may we beware. I mean, we need to be careful about any techniques, tactics, or systems that come from the world. If Jesus didn't use these things, we shouldn't either. It's not sales or marketing. I'm almost done, by the way, so hang with me a few more minutes. It's not sales, marketing, psychology, or sociology. Solid. Sociology. See all these? It's even hard to say all this stuff. It's none of that. It's the power of God. That's what the apostle, he, he, he said, I, I'm still pressing toward. I haven't apprehended. I haven't attained. I'm pressing toward the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. I'm still trying to, to lay hold of the one who has laid hold of me. That's why he wrote what he did in the beginning of his second letter to the Corinthians. You know this. Listen to it, though. I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined, this was purposeful, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Lord Jesus, let that be true here. I get up and say some things that are motivating. It's not going to transform your life. Only the power of God can do that. I don't want your faith to stand... We live in a time when all sorts of people are, quote, leaving the faith. I mean, prominent people, people who've written religious books, people who were famous Christians, leaving the faith. You know why? Listen. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Many of these people, their faith stood in the wisdom of men. It was an information they received that sounded good at the time, and later it wasn't enough to keep them. Only the power of God. So, there's a reason I didn't call this message how to evangelize. There's a reason I don't have five steps to tell you how to evangelize. There's, there's a reason, brothers and sisters, that I'm not saying do this and then this and then this and then they'll be saved. Because Jesus didn't do that. Neither did the apostles. Neither did Scripture. Say, well, you haven't told me how to evangelize. Sorry. That's not really my job. My job is to preach the truth. And the way you evangelize is to tell people the truth. There's a Savior, there's a God that you've wronged, that you've sinned against, and you might not realize it, but He loves you. And He wants to save you. 
And when he does, it'll be unlike anything you've ever experienced. And I don't really know how to describe it to you. But he changed my life and he can change. I'm not telling you the words to use because there aren't the exact right words. It's the overflowing of from your heart of what he did for you. So don't worry too much about... You say, well, you just told me to worry about the words. I'm telling you, don't use the wrong words. But if you're not using the wrong words, just speak from your heart. God will work it out. There's a song I want to uh, close with or read the lyrics to. This was a man, I think, who got it. He wrote this song in the mid-1800s. He was born in 1797. And uh, I tried to find out a little bit about him. And it says he, he, he was a wild man when he was young. And he, he never even heard of God. And he just roamed the streets. And then when he heard the gospel, he underwent a great spiritual change. Became a new man and a Baptist minister. And he wrote this song. Listen to these lyrics. And you probably know it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It, that's a strange phraseology. I looked at to make sure I didn't get a, a, a wrong version that had the words wrong. But you think about it. Everything other than Jesus' blood and righteousness is less. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I told you before, we can employ tactics and techniques and do a bunch of stuff and build up this congregation. We might be building something, but it won't be a church. It has to be on Christ. No other hope. This man got it. This final verse I'll read to and then I'll be done. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. This is a man who placed his hope in Jesus and said, there's nothing I can do. Amen. May we do that, even if it makes us have a less polished system or have less figured out. Don't worry about it. Serve the Lord in purity, and in truth, and let the Holy Spirit do what only He can do. That's the message. God bless you all this morning. I pray it's a help to us all.